Today, my guest is Sean Patrick. I'm, he's down in Florida. I met you, Sean, I don't know, how many years, eight years ago it's now? Been at least, yeah. Yeah, yep. Um, I had a group of uh, clients down there and we didn't have a permanent home, so we kept trying to find another location where we could do clinics and um, somebody asked Sean, and so we started doing clinics down there, and that's how I met you. So, um, Sean, just for those uh, who may not know who you are, um, just give us a little bit of your, your background here, okay? Sure, yeah. Okay, so I'm from Canada, and uh, my late teens and 20s I spent in British Columbia as a packer and a trail guide for an old-time family, uh, and that's kind of where I got the majority of my experience and uh, my love for horses kept growing as I worked there and uh, probably in early 2000s I went down and studied or spent a year with John Lyons in his certification program and that really kick-started further learning. Uh, went on to Texas for half a dozen years and I've been in Florida about 12 years. That and long. <laughs> I know it's weird it feels like I just got here and I've actually lived in this home longer than any other house I've ever been at which is bizarre. Yeah, that's amazing. I know that feeling because that's the same for me in this house. It's uh, I used to average a move every six months for many years. <laughs> so, all right. So tell us a little bit about what your training style is like, what you work with with people. That yeah. Kind of so I really, I really get a kick out of raining. Uh, I'm not a big show person. I don't, I don't show a lot of raining, but I really enjoy uh, teaching the maneuvers and I really enjoy that kind of style of training as far as you know what they're capable of doing so ranch versatility ranch you know type horses are or more my when i look at a, at a quality horse i look at a quarter horse yeah. in, my, in my brain you know that's where i go i mean obviously i ride different horses and and been around lots of different types but yeah quarter horses that can kind of do it all is is that's where my uh happy spot is um Cool. I spent if you got any um, photos you can share with us that are on your computer there of some of Yeah. Your How do you do that? Okay, great. So a uh, little tutorial here. Down at the bottom of the screen, there's a little green up arrow that says share screen. Yep. Okay. So when you click on that, you're gonna get some different pictures of what you know is either on your desktop or in a file. So gotcha. if you have your photos open, just you can click on that screen that shows your photos. And okay, you then disabled the sharing. It says host disabled attendee screen sharing. Hang on. I have to comment on the picture behind you. That is brilliant. After watching Joe Exotic for the first time this week. <laughs> so Are you a big cat lady? This picture actually. Um, back in the 90s, I used to go over to Switzerland uh -huh. and um, I got to watch uh, the training for Circus Knie. And Circus Knie is the oldest. Uh, it's like a national treasure at the time it was like 75 years old so now it's probably it's probably 100 years old and mr kenny would train um all positive reinforcement and you could go to all the training sessions and they just had like a little tube you know about that big around that the horses stayed in like the the arena for the circus um and they did all their training and they trained i watched them train zebras and they trained a, a giraffe they rode a giraffe and um so his brother did all these um, paintings of the animals and so this is a print from the from the brother um, and I still fondly remember watching those training because it was um, it they they were totally open about everything you could watch everything they did and um, 
Mr. Kinney was, he was just, you know, so kind and so brilliant in his training. And that circus is still going on. We went to the performances. It's all in German. We couldn't understand a word, but you get the jokes because they have comedy and, and acts and stuff like that. So it's really awesome. Very all right. Cool. So I think I set you up so you can share your screen. Yeah, I'm okay. trying. Okay. So you, you went down a little green arrow. Yeah, but now I've lost your screen. Huh. Um, that's because when you share your screen, I'll just appear up in the corner in a little box. Okay. So. Hmm. Okay, unshare your screen for a second. I'll show you how it works. I don't know how to unshare it. Uh, at the top, there should be a little menu there that says unshare. Yeah, I've lost the whole thing. Oh. But we can still see you. I know, it's good. At least that's working. I'm very sorry. I've never lived anywhere with cable internet. I've always been on a cellular phone or a sat or a yeah, satellite. And uh, they're a little bit spotty. Yeah. Well, you this is a we have a great connection. Um, all right. So, let's see how I can, you know what? Uh, how can I do this? Um, basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to you just hit screen share which is the green button at the bottom, you get like a sample of pictures that are on your desktop, right? And so now you can share my, see my screen. I have a horse standing on pads and you've appeared in my, up in the corner. Hmm. I can see you now, it's very small, but I can see you. Yes, I'm very small, but you should see the picture of the horse very large. Mm -mm. Okay, so then if I stop my screen share, do you, hang on, hang with us folks. We're just gonna work out some technical stuff. I'm very sorry about that. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I know why you couldn't do it. <laughs> Who can start sharing when someone else is sharing? Okay, I just had to hit some more. I guess I didn't set you up as a panelist, so that's the problem. All right, I just changed some settings. So now, do you have a little green screen share button at the bottom of your screen, of your Zoom page? No, because my Zoom page is gone. Uh, well, we can see you. I know. Are you a Mac person? Uh-huh. All right, so, so somewhere um, you've hidden my the screen because it's there. So do you know how to use mission control? Oh, I did it. Great, okay. Wow, <laughs> okay. It's All okay, right. you know, yeah. on the job training. This is, you know what's really great about this is that now you know what it feels like for your students. You right. Know? Because yeah. I, I think one of the things that happens with clinicians is that we're so in the weeds and it's so familiar to us that we sometimes forget what it's like to be the student and to struggle with things. So, mm -hmm. you know, you just get to be like one of your students right now and, and learn something new. I've been learning a lot about uh, cattle lately and we're doing AI. I just had the guy here. And we're breeding some cattle and I'm going to school for the AI and all that stuff. And it's, it's very humbling because I understand animals and cattle and hard work and all that, but I don't have a clue what I'm doing. So I've got this, <laughs> this fellow kind of holding my hand as I walk through it, kind of telling me what to do and what not to do. And it's breed I'm very fortunate to have them, but. Yeah. What breed of cattle? Black Angus. Oh, okay. They'll do okay in Florida? I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Because <laughs> it's not down. All right. So now, do you have a screen share button at the bottom of your page? Yes. Okay, great. Click on your screen share button. Got it. Okay. So now you should have some windows to choose from. Uh -huh. Right? Pick one of them. Hopefully one with a picture that we'll all want to see. <laughs> Dropbox. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that'll work. 
You might have to open the picture in Dropbox first because it might not show us that picture. It's a little funny about which screen it shows us. Hmm. So do you have your Dropbox already open? It's working on it. Oh, okay. it's not working. So how long have you been in the cattle business? Um, probably about a year. Well, no, about two and a half years now. Oh, okay. I started with some commercial ones and then I, um, just, I decided to do it right. So I sold them and I started with some really good ones and uh, they weren't good enough. So I got rid of them and kept getting better ones. So now I'm going to be at about eight really high end cows. So I'm kind of going for the breeding stock thing. Right. So okay. So you got your Dropbox open? No, it won't work. Cause it has to connect again and it won't. Okay. Do you have any pictures in your photos? We'd love to see a picture of one of your horses. I can't get the photos from here. All right, so you go back to your desktop, you open your photos. Go back to my desktop. You know, like you can minimize the zoom screen a little bit so you can see your files. Your... I feel bad for people watching, this is crazy. <laughs> Like I said, you know, sometimes uh, it's actually fun to watch and see that clinicians also have trouble learning something new. Um, but otherwise, we can just we can just talk if you if it's that difficult, we can uh, find another way, right? So, yeah. like in your training, I know that you you know I've watched you train and I've watched you ride, and I think one of the things that I've seen you work with and that people really enjoy is your obstacle courses. Yeah, yeah, they're a lot of fun. We, yeah, we so did that. We were, that we were really doing it. It started because of the road to the horse competition where we had to take a horse back. And uh, basically that was a big part of it was being able to do obstacles and being in that kind of environment with a young horse that hadn't seen a lot. So at that point we started looking into it and building obstacles and going to local um, obstacle challenges and obstacle farms and parks and just really trying to get a handful of horses like absolutely incredible at it and it was fun and it worked really well once they they've been around and they've seen a lot and done a lot and they're trained of course you know as well so they're they have a good handle on them um it really does make an incredible horse and uh i think i think that may i think that improves your horse more than anything is just getting them out and letting them see the world but it's not just about balloons and scary tarps you know there's a lot of maneuvering and that really tells you where your holes are and so for that it was really worth it so it's interesting because uh working equitation is becoming super popular and mm -hmm. and i think that the reason it's becoming so popular is that it's 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 like it is obstacles right it just has a little more flavor to it in terms of the clothes and the style and where it comes from but basically it is obstacles and um you know, I have a friend who, um, Marie McAteer, and she's a Kiwi, she's from New Zealand, and but she spends her summers here in Colorado, and she took working equitation back to New Zealand. And again, it's like setting up environments where horses and people can learn. So if you, like, say you were at home right now, locked down, what could, what could somebody do to kind of create an obstacle that they could work through that would be, you know, like, not as challenging as this Zoom meeting for you, <laughs> well that's a good question because this is what i did i kind of broke like obstacles come in about half dozen categories you've got 
you know, scary sounds, you have skinny bridges, you have moving bridges, you have um, cowboy curtains, you have water, you know, you can kind of break it down into different. And, and when you go to different obstacle challenges, they'll have a variety of those categories that'll look and feel different based on how they were built and what they look like. But basically, if you really master an obstacle like a water box, there's a really good chance you're going to find success with another water box that looks different. But if you struggle with one, you're going to struggle with probably most of them. So what I did is I took each category, for example, a pedestal, and I made sure that I got it rock solid. And then I practiced that pedestal, you know, in the arena, in the field, on a different property, no matter what. But I didn't just teach the horse to get on it through foot control and the horse, you know, waiting for me and being patient, but I actually tried to get the horse to want to be on each of these obstacles. And so I would throw one or two obstacles in the big arena and I would lope circles for, you know, X amount of time and I go rest on the obstacle. And so not only after I taught them how to get on it, now they want to get on it because that's where they always rest. And so I would do that for a month, two months, and then I'd switch up the obstacles with a teeter-totter, a big one, or a skinny bridge. Skinny bridges are the hardest because they, they don't have a lot of desire to stay on the skinny bridge because it's only five inches to the ground or maybe eight oh, wow. inches to the ground. They're not, they're not very tall. So you're not worried about them falling and getting hurt. It's just hard to motivate them to want to keep their feet on the skinny bridge. So I really struggled with that. They would walk on it with one or two feet all the time. No problem. They totally got that. But they never put all four on until I started letting them rest on it. And now they'll, then they side pass to it, get on it, and then walk it. But this is really fascinating to hear you talk about this because one of my guests um, that I've had on twice is Sharon Wilsey. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Sharon Wilsey? I haven't, no. Um, she's written a book called Horse Speak. You, I think you would oh, really. Oh, I read that, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Sharon is a friend of mine, and I've had her on two Zoom meetings. And one of the things she talks about in Horse Speak is a safety object where she has an object, typically it'll be an orange cone because those are available, and that's where the horses learn how to switch down into parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. and we've had these conversations about surefoot pads and how surefoot pads start to act like safety cones. You know, right. they're that object that the horse recognizes and rests, and it sounds like you're using that basically same concept with mm -hmm. your obstacles. Exactly. But yeah, that's the place where the horse gets to rest, which is really interesting because so often when people try to teach the horse something new or deal with a stressful situation, they get upset and actually add more pressure to the horse instead of taking pressure away. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I mean, how many times have you seen somebody where the horse won't go in the corner of the arena, so they start like adding leg or using their reins more or using their a whip or whatever to, to try and get the horse to get into the corner. But really what I think we want to do is make the corner a place where the horse wants to be as opposed to a place that he's trying to avoid. Yep, I totally agree with that. And that's exactly how we do the obstacles and, and ranch work. So for example, if you're chasing a, a you know, a cow, like a, a plastic cow behind the Kubota and you're trying to teach it how to track, you make that sweet spot right behind the cow a safe place. And it doesn't matter if your horse is ever going to be a roping horse. It just teaches it how to track. It gets them looking forward, thinking forward. Some of the craziest horses I've ever worked with did the best by following um, a fake cow. Because it gave them something to think about. So they're totally bronchy and acting scared and nervous everywhere else. And as soon as they started tracking for a week, they learned how to go forward and learn how to take a big breath and relax. Wow. that's that, Again, that's really fascinating because 
Like if I think about Sharon's work, she talks about a sandwich and always putting the horse in a second position rather than trying to put him in a first position. And uh, I'm sure you've had this experience, but I've been on safari in Africa and, uh, <laughs> you know, Gordy, our fearless leader, has a lead horse, uh, Mushala, who is so brave and he'll just march out in front of everybody. But, you know, occasionally another horse needs to lead and they're like, no, no, I just want to be in second. I don't want to go first, you know. And that whole idea of having something else that they see is sort of, you're out there, but if you're gonna get attacked, you're the one who's gonna get there. And I can sit back here in second position, but it makes them feel safe. Well, for example, on a cattle drive, you'd never put the two-year-old or the three-year-old or the nervous horse up front, where there's 400 cows behind you coming at you. You would get behind the 400 cows and push lightly. And then the, the horse is their choice to keep following and to push themselves, but they don't feel like something's coming at them. So you can build some confidence by being the pusher. And then sooner or later you become, you know, on the sides and then in the front. Yep. And gradually in, uh, introduce the idea of being a leader as opposed to saying, here you go. <laughs> right. Got to get out there. And I wonder if that isn't the case. You know, a lot of people, when they try to go out on a trail ride by themselves, the horses get so worried because they don't have support. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having a riding out with a friend, which isn't always possible right now, seeing as how we're on lockdown and a lot of people can't even get to the barn. Mm -hmm. That's why we pack a lot of, we, you know, pack horses that taught me how to make a great trail horse was to basically tow them, <laughs> pull them around, <laughs> pull them around for a couple of years with light grain bags on them, you know, and after a while, they, nothing bothers them, Yeah. but you're not sticking them up front. It's not a sink or swim. You're saying, Hey, Follow the group that you already know. You already spend time with them on the range. You live with them. Everybody's good. They're following a path they already know. You're giving them lots of uh, predictable patterns and and uh, comfort in the group before you make them ask them to go out on their own. Yeah. Um, you know, I think sometimes we don't think about how hard that is on a horse, like even an arena, to go into an arena all by itself. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot of demand when it's a herd animal and it wants to be supported by other herd animals. And then suddenly we stick it in this position and say, you got to go in all by yourself, whether it's a competition, whether it's, you know, for training, mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting. I totally agree. When we started horses in the round pen, you know, I, I use a round pen for the first little bit. Um, I retreat a lot. I get that horse to really, you know, I maybe add a stimulus, uh, such as a tarp or a bag or a hand or a, a rub, and then I back up and I let these horses keep coming to me. And so, same idea. But yeah, yeah, back to the obstacles, it's, it's uh, exactly what you're saying. They, they go into their parasympathetic as soon as they know they're safe, as soon as they feel comfortable, and as soon as they feel that they're not under pressure and they know that that's a, you know, like if you have a young horse and they won't take a bath, they won't stand in the wash rack. It's only because they don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. So once they feel safe and it's part of their predictable pattern, oh, this is a good place to be. I've been here before. Nothing bad happened. In fact, it was a good thing. After a few, you know, easy washings, they're, uh, they grow comfortable. And so you want to get that same kind of comfort level standing on a tarp or standing in a water puddle or walking under a cowboy curtain or hearing a bullwhip crack. So I don't go out of my way to make them crazy. I go out of my way to make them comfortable. Right. I, I, that's a fabulous point. You got other, you're uh, out of, say it again. <laughs> I go out of my way. I do not go out of my way to make them crazy. I try to go out of my way to keep them comfortable and, and peaceful because I find that the obstacle challenges, you're going to see a lot of um, different thoughts, a lot of different 
you know, thinking from the different riders. And a lot of them are just scared and horses to death, thinking it's going to make them better. And if they survive, sometimes it will, but it's not always the best approach because you're just creating nerves when you don't have to. You know? Yeah, you know, and it's really interesting that you bring that point up because um, several years ago, they don't have it anymore, but I went to uh, the Californios competition in Reno. And they had a piece of the competition where they had some horses that had been roped off of, but not very much. So they were lightly broke, you know? Um, and these guys had to go in, strange horse, didn't know the horse, and basically in a short amount of time, be able to move the cattle, I think rope, rope cow. They, you know, obviously they had some helpers there, but the thing that fascinated me the most was that the guys that were really quiet and never caused the horse to have to react, lost. Mm -hmm they lost. And that the guys that kind of show that, oh, this horse is kind of crazy and now I can make it calm, they won. But to me, the guy who never caused that horse to feel stress should have been the one that won. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, then, and like you said, you're comparing ranch roping to team roping in a way, you know, a lot of the good ranch ropers, their ultimate sin is to cause stress. And that's what they keep in the back of their head the entire time they're working cows or or there's, you know, stock, they're trying to eliminate stress. There's going to be a little bit because you're moving them or you're giving them a needle or whatever, but it's very minimal. It's very quick. It's very humane. And then it's over. Yeah. But, you know, not causing stress is a big deal. And so I'm kind of like that with the horses. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because I, I saw that with your training that your goal is to actually have the horses feel comfortable with you and feel safe with you so that they can learn as opposed to stressing them and pushing them into a place where they're really not learning, they're just shutting down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people have a hard time recognizing the difference between a horse that's shut down versus a horse, you know, and they think it's compliant, but right. it's not engaged, it doesn't learn well, you know, and there's always a hole that's gonna show up somewhere else because they really didn't understand what they were doing in the first place. But here's the problem with that. Because I think like that, I often don't push enough. And so I'm still trying to figure out how I can pull a good response out of a horse. Uh, because sometimes I don't push hard enough. I don't, maybe, maybe my bar is set really high, but my timeline's set too long. Or sometimes I find that I actually get into a little bit of a rut or a plateau with a horse because I'm giving them so much time and I don't make them uncomfortable. So they reach for new answers. And I'm still... I don't have an answer for that. It's still something I'm always working on. But, you know, for example, I've been working with some young horses right now and, and I actually stepped into them a little bit more than I normally would and it worked. It was great. It was like brilliant. Okay. It took a month, but I got some things I wasn't getting and I felt like I was kind of, so figuring that balance out is tricky. Yeah. You know, this reminds me very much of um, when I, when I do my clinics, I talk about a man named David Butler, who's written a book called Explain Pain. And he's, um, they, whether it's pain or fear or learning, I think it's all the same thing. That if you um, always stay below the line, you wind up in dysfunction. If you always push above the line, you wind up in dysfunction. And what we have to do, I call it flirting with the line. That we, It's like the stock market. Sometimes you have to go a little above, not so much to create so much stress that the horse is going to have to react badly or goes into shutdown, but go a little above and then come back down. And, you know, I'm going to take it back to the beginning of the Zoom meeting, watching you struggle a little bit. And I could see that you were getting a little bit above the line and we had to like make it away so that we could bring you back down so you could have a conversation and not just stress about, I can't get to my Dropbox. <laughs> right. 
but but at the same time the fact that it's like oh i couldn't get to my dropbox maybe next time you know you'll be a little more prepared or we'll figure it out so it's sometimes we need something that kind of shows us where we need to work where we really thought we were okay but we weren't quite kind of like my friend that used to always play his piano i called it in the closet and never went out in public and when he did he was oh there's there's some things i need to work on right yeah, I was, I mean, I always remember, I don't know who said it early in my training career, but they say horses learn through contrast. And so that helped me show, or at least think about my, my signaling and my pressures and my, or perceived pressures. A lot of times I just act like I'm pressuring, but I'm not pressuring. It's in my voice and my muscle or, you know, the way I jiggle my feet. It's not that I'm hammering on them or anything, but, uh, when you show that ultimate relief, that moment's bigger and better than it would have been if you just, like you said, stayed below the line. Yep. So there is, there is a time and place to make them a little bit uncomfortable or at least motivate them to find that answer faster. And then you can go, yep, you had it. And then all of a sudden, it, you didn't drag it out over three months. You know, you... Yeah, and, and so much of that, though, comes that you can do that because it comes from your setup of the horses learning that they can trust and and feel safe with you and that you provide them safety places so they already know with you that there's a that they can find that and that you're on their side as opposed to just stepping in and just pushing them and and having them just explode because they can't figure it out right. and there's this whole idea of, of learning to learn and i yeah. think that's so critical that not only in riders but in horses that we have to learn how to learn yeah. and john taught me john lyons taught me that that was his first big lesson when I went there was, you know, we went to the round pen and we taught the horse to do this and do that. And every time you showed releases, the next time they got it faster and faster and faster. And before long, you just raise the dressage whip and jiggle it in the air and the horse is picking up feet going, okay, which foot, you know, what are you after? Like they're really trying to find it. And uh, that's a great place to be because that's when things really start happening. Right. So we had somebody ask a question. So that I, she has a quarter horse that lives at a barn alone and he's quite nervous on the trail with me, just no other horse. And how do you recommend we begin riding alone safely? It, I think it depends on how you set it up. I think if you took a horse fresh out of the stall and, uh, and went on the trail, even if they've been on the trail a lot, maybe they're not set up physically, emotionally, you know, in that moment, maybe it's better to, work on some go-to exercises that you and the horse know inside out and get them into a really, like you said, to a parasympathetic letdown a number of times and then attempt the trail. I think that would help. I think if you have pent up energy in a horse that it can express itself in ways we don't want. Um, so I don't mind fagging out a horse a little bit. I mean, I don't, I don't use it as a crutch. I wouldn't take a wild Mustang and run him for half a day until he can't breathe. But I also don't want a horse that's just had the world's best grain in alfalfa and been in the stall for six days and now it's cold and windy and I want him to do a, a nice, smooth, relaxed lope circle. He, he might want to run a little bit or you might want to, you know, dart around a little bit. So I do think it's okay to kind of tax them um, enough that you get them to a physical and an emotional side every day. That's a big thing for me. I want them to a physical sigh every day and emotional sigh every day. So there's a lot of days, for example, the last two weeks where it's getting really hot here and I've had some great rides and I literally don't have any sweat on the horse. So I, but I still feel like I got to a, a physical side. They still relaxed. They worked hard. They let down. Everything went really, really well. And then uh, emotionally and, you know, in their brains, they were also relaxed. So I was really happy with the workout without it being, 
over over taxing. Yeah, but I, do, I do agree with pushing them enough to make them breathe heavy. <laughs> um, and also, I think what you're saying there is too with this particular person, if she rode the horse in the arena and then at the end went out a little bit. And I talk to people, you know, sometimes we're like so stuck on what a trail ride is, the definition of a trail ride and how far that has to be. And so it's like just going out a little bit and coming back into the arena and working back the arena and just going out again and coming back. So the horse gets used to going out and coming back, that it's not out and I'm going to be away and, oh, it's going to be drama, you know. Um, but, you know, and this is, this brings up a point that I wanted to talk to you about that, um, you know, I hear the term pressure release a lot. And that whole idea, but you know, from a scientific perspective, and that's what I am, I'm a scientist by training, um, all your hormones in your body are released in pulses. And the minute a hormone is released in a steady state, the target cells go numb to the, to the hormone. They don't see it anymore. And also the, the way I think about it too, is that in learning, in learning anything, we need a pause or a rest for the brain to refresh to come again. And so, you know, I hear this term pressure release a lot, but, I, but to me, people start to interpret it as, um, for me, it's just basic learning, that if we're going to learn something, there needs to be an action and there needs to be a rest. And, and we need multiple exposures to learn something. Like me with these Zoom meetings, the first one I had multiple, I mean, it was like, I couldn't find the sound, you know, but with repeated use, I'm now getting better. I can help someone else because I've, I've learned how to do it as opposed to just this sort of, I guess, oversimplified, if you will, concept. Yeah. I, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is I, obviously I, I, uh, I train and I teach just by using what you just mentioned. You know, I, I show the horse what I want and give them, you know, relief or rest or, and let them regroup. But also I'm finding that I'm patterning horses more and more. I used to think patterning or getting a horse to just do things repeatedly was like always a negative. But I also am seeing that when I think of my patterns as being like little parts of a whole, you know, workout or, or program or whatever, and I view each part as a pattern and a predictable pattern at that, then when I put it together, I find it's much easier. So I've just, I've also, I used to think, because when I trained horses as an outfitter, right, as a guide, all I did was just kept doing it till they quit acting up. I didn't know what I was doing. All I did was sit there and come on, let's go. And, you know, never heard them. Never, I wasn't hard on them. Right. But I just thought that if they did it for nine years, they'd be good by the time they're 11. And it, they were. Yeah. <laughs> but um, now we're getting them there a lot faster. And I'm now seeing the, the beauty of patterning certain things and showing them, you know, where they can almost rest in the pattern. They're still loping or they're still trotting, but they're actually at peace while they're working. So I'm, I'm internally laughing as you're talking about this for two reasons. One, the picture behind me that we talked about when we first came on is um, from the Circus Kani. And one of the things that Circus Kani talks about is teaching skills rather than drills. And that's exactly what you're talking about, is teaching a skill and that you string skills together into a performance or whatever the outcome is, as opposed to just doing the drill of the thing over and over and over and over again without breaking down bits and pieces. And when you teach skills, like um, you can take them, they're like, think of it like little Legos and you can take the little Legos and you can put them together into, into this little monster or take them apart and make this little house or take them apart and build something else because each packet is a skill and it's just a question of how you put them together versus 
drilling, which is trying to do the whole thing as a chunk. And if you make a mistake, you just start at the beginning and you try to do the whole thing as a chunk again. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I remember I was learning from you one day, you were giving me a, um, some great advice. And I was so concerned in my head about being correct all the time. And I didn't know what correct always was. You were helping me learn what correct was. But then one time you stopped and you said, okay, but then there's reality. And I still think about that every day I ride because I'm out there and I'm trying to do the right things. And then I hear your voice going, yeah, but then there's reality. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do to get it done so that you can be correct afterward. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. So there's a lot of little things you've uh, taught me that still stick with me every day. Oh, that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah, and, and because, you know, like, um, do you know who Stephen Peters is? He wrote yeah. Evidence-Based Horsemanship with Martin Black. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I've read that a few times. Yeah, I've had him on one Zoom meeting, and he's, he's going to be my guest on Thursday night. And, um, you know, one of the things we've talked about, because we've been together a couple of times the past year or so, is that it doesn't have to be perfect to learn. That, gotcha. that making mistakes is actually part of the learning process, and it's, and it's almost a necessary part of the learning process. And I think that riders so often get um, – caught up in doing it right. I see that with my students as riders, they want to do it right and do it perfect. And the very thought of trying to be right and perfect is what's wrong. Yeah. Cause then I, can, not- I can totally see that. Cause it, and you know, with the rainy maneuvers that I'm trying to teach, I uh, sometimes run into that too, where I'm trying to get things spot on and I'm missing the point. Yeah. I'm not, I, I get in the horse's way instead of helping the horse kind of find their own answer a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's fascinating. And I think um, the more we learn about how we learn, um, and I talk to my students a lot about the fact that when we're learning riding, we're actually learning like a horse because riding is movement and horses learn through movement. They don't have a cognitive part of their brain that you can rationalize with. That's one of the things I love talking with Stephen about. He talks about they're just, they're really much more simple. Um, and that when we get into learning like a horse, learning through movement, that's when we can appreciate and understand what they need to learn. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of people um, that I've worked with or, or helped or been helped by that, you know, really do have, it's kind of like <laughs> my dad and my mom are both preachers, okay? Sometimes <laughs> you don't want to get to know the preacher, right? You just want to hear what they say for an hour a week and it's beautiful. And I read these old texts, you know, from eons ago about horses and training. And I think, man, I'm so glad I never saw this guy ride. Because <laughs> what they're saying in the book is brilliant. I love it. I learn from it. And I take that to heart and I go and I apply it as best I can. But if I ever saw them ride, it would be like, ah, whatever. You know? Like, yeah. <laughs> so like there's a lot of people um, that I, I work with that really have it in their head, but it's really hard to put things into practice when you have the physical part the the fear part there's always a bit of fear of course because there's a balance ongoing balance issue and that's just naturally fearful for so yeah it's a I don't know exactly how to I don't know exactly how to put it into words but you know because you have to not only think it but you have to apply it and it's so complex there's so many different muscles and thoughts going on at the same time it makes riding still very challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, why are we in it? Because it is a challenge. And if it was that easy, I think a lot of us would have gone on and found something else. But um, it's that challenge that intrigues 
intrigues us, you know. Um, so what's, what's something that you've come up with lately that, um, a problem that you ran into? I'd love to hear some of your problems that you've ran into that you actually came out with a solution that worked. Well, you know, like um, with Surefoot, I've been doing Surefoot for eight years now. And the more I work with this, um, I, the more I come to the conclusion that behavior problems are balance problems. And that, you know, when the horse is out of balance physically, he's out of balance mentally and emotionally. And, and so often people want to label the horse as a behavior problem and not acknowledge the balance problem that's really going on that's causing the behavior. And you already just mentioned it, the fear aspect. You know, my example is if you're standing on the edge of a precipice and you're leaning over and then somebody's starting to push on you, you're going to get really upset, right? And you're going to react in whatever way that your nervous system reacts when it feels threatened. And so when we can bring the person or the horse, either one back into balance, then the nervous system can calm down and it's available. Um, and so the more I keep working with this, the, I even have to rethink a lot of stuff that I've done with horses that I thought was kind, you know, and now I'm realizing, wow, I, I think I missed, I missed it. I think I really missed what was going on. And I, and I'm so fascinated by some of the people I've had on like Dr. Bowker talking about the foot and how the, uh, how important this whole foot structure is and keeping the shape of the foot so that it organizes the whole system and the whole deal with gravity and balance. Um, that for me, it's been a lot of just kind of getting deeper into what I was already kind of starting to look at since I, I saw you last, but just more, just um, more interesting things. But the, and then the other piece that I've been really looking at is the whole idea of the vagal nerve and this whole, you know, am I safe? And the biggest question that horses and people have is, am I safe? And whether we acknowledge it or not, that's the, that's the thing. And I have a little way of describing that because, you know, pe people sometimes don't understand the correlation between the person vagal response and the horse vagal response. So I tell them like, um, say your significant other said, we have to go to a dinner party and it's at my boss's house. And as soon as I get there, I'm going to have to go to a meeting. So I'm going to have to leave you. So what's the first thing you try to do? You try to get out of it, right? You don't want to go. You're like, oh, I have, a, I have another meeting. I have an appointment. I'm sick. I can't go. And so there's a lot of horses that the first thing that happens is they, they want to get out of it. They, they don't want to be with us for whatever reason. Something's been awful or they're unsure or they haven't been taught. And then, you know, we, we go to the dinner party and we stand at the door. And the next thing we do is like, how long do I have to be here? Can I be here for five minutes and get out? Which is the escape route? Where's the way out? And what happens with horses? They walk into the arena and they're like, I want out or the trail or wherever. And their first thought is, how can I get out of here? And then the next thing we do is go to the bar. <laughs> we get a drink, right? And the poor horses, they can't go to a bar. They can't get a drink. <laughs> we go to the bar, we get a drink. It drops our nervous system down. We're able to cope a little more. And then we go over to the table and get snacks. So we graze. And we punish our horses when they come into a strange place and they start looking for grass. We say, you can't graze, but we go to the table and we have all the snacks and we stand there and we satiate that because that triggers the parasympathetic. And just like the horses, you know, Stephen talks about, you know, let your horse out of the trailer and let them graze if they're a little nervous because they're trying to self-medicate. They're trying to find that parasympathetic response. And then the next thing we do, we look around and we go, who here do I know? Oh, there's somebody, I met him five years ago at a horse show. I know they have a horse. It's the only person in the room that has a horse. So we flock. 
and we go right over to them and we buddy up, right? And what do the horses do? They want to flock with their friends. And what do we do? We tell them they can't do that, right? We tell them they have to go away. They can't be with their friend, quit hollering, you know? And so I think if we can start recognizing how much like a horse we really are, but we cover it with this intellect and we make up stories and, and that sort of thing. And we deny our experience emotionally, but the more we can recognize we're having the same visceral response, but the horse is more pure. The horse is more uh, um, expressive of those visceral reactions and that vagal nerve response and the lack of feeling safe. And the number one question we both have is, am I safe? And it I just blows my mind because that's what humans think too, exactly. Yeah. Like, like you're saying, am I safe? Mom always said, everybody's insecure. We just all show it differently. Exactly. Exactly. And so we, we have natural insecurities, whether it's safety or whether it's whatever, you know. And, and we all respond to that question in a different way. Like, um, you know, some people, when they don't feel safe, get aggressive. Um, some horses, when they don't feel safe, get aggressive. Some people, when they don't feel safe, they, they just withdraw. Some horses withdraw. Some fool around, you know, and my friend calls that domesticated flight. Um, you remember Donna's horse that only, he would just fool around and fool around and fool around. And that's how he coped with his environment was just to be, be the clown. And people do that all the time. And, and we tell the horse to quit it, but we laugh at the person, you know, but neither one of them is okay. Both of them are feeling I'm not safe. And we really, if we could stop reacting to the horse's behavior and start responding to the question and create the safety place. I think that that's where we're gonna see, when we finally recognize this, we're gonna see a huge shift in the way we train horses. Because in the past, we just tell the horse to quit it, stop it, get back, get out of my space, you're being disrespectful. We label it with all these things that are not true because a horse doesn't think that way. He's just looking for safety and he's gonna look for it in whatever way the dinner party presents itself, whether that's food, friends, flight, bright, you know, fool around, just any of those mechanisms. That's fascinating. That's, I, I'm thinking along those same lines, but you put it in the, some new words for me. But it's true. I mean, if, as soon as your horse feels safe, you know. Now, can they feel too safe? Can they get too comfortable? Can they get complacent? Yes. Can, can horses get boring, bored themselves? People, right? Yeah. And we become inactive. So I have a great chart, um, it, and it's for people, but it talks about when we're hypo, we're lethargic, we're depressed, and horses can get lethargic and depressed when we're not challenged enough. So, so um, basically you have sympathetic and parasympathetic, and you want it to kind of be within a range, right? And it's just fluctuating like a sine wave. Again, it's a pulse, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't want it to just stay up here and you don't want it down here, you want it in this fluctuation. Um, and so like right now we're sitting and talking to each other, so um, I'm a little more animated, so I have a little more sympathetic, right? And then if I rest, I'm going to go back down. But for me to stand up and take any action, I have to have some sympathetic. It is not a bad thing. It, mm -hmm. Sympathetic is action. And so it can be that the horse or the person or the rider, you know, that's staying below the line. You're never quite pushing up enough mm -hmm. to, to kind of have to kick you into another gear. And let's take the pandemic for an example, is that we were all running along on a plane and everybody was kind of going along. And now suddenly we have something that's challenged that and we're having to reevaluate. And so some people are getting really hyper, some people are really depressed, some people are really sad, but we've been 
forced by a constraint to shift into another gear. And how we respond to that is really the, the piece that's the most important. That we respond in a positive way, like taking it as an advantage, like I got this time, so I'm connecting with all my friends on Zoom meetings every single day, right? And I know I can find you because I know you're home. <laughs> <laughs> Versus panicking about the fact that, you know, I mean, I don't know when I'll ever be able to teach my day job again because I put my hands on riders and I'm really up close and personal until I can do that again. I'm not sure when I'm going back to work, mm -hmm. but it's not stressing about something I can't change. It's looking at what I can do and preparing, you know, working in my little I'm okay place right. to get things done. So I'm ready when things change again. Right. Yeah, I totally, I can see that. Yeah, I find sometimes I get my horses a little bit too uh, comfortable, and I, I think I have to step into them. Not step into them, but, you know, brighten it up. Right. Give them some new challenges, and, uh, you know, but I get into a pattern, too. Yep. And because uh, sometimes as a trainer, you're trying to get through the day. You know, how do I get all these horses ridden before the rain hits or before 5 o'clock when it's 90 degrees out and you've got places to go? And So, yeah, you know, it's, it's – it takes effort to keep being, you know, creative and coming up with these things, Absolutely. But, but it's definitely needed. And the thing is, that's why we have, you know, like I get some students like, oh, I never want to show, but I disagree with that because it's about picking the right competition, you know, one that fits you. But that's that having a goal, having a focal point, and then having a challenge to test. Are we just a closet pianist or can we really play in public, you gotcha. know? And yep. having that goal where it's, and how do we respond to that if we don't do well? Do we let somebody else's opinion ruin our day? Or do we take it as their opinion and maybe this is something that I missed and I can work on? Right. So, you know, competition can be a good thing. It all depends on how we, how we uh, look at it as a challenge versus I've got to be perfect and win. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to go with certain horses and just be okay. I just wanted a good outing and a good experience. And yeah. And there's other times you go and you want to win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay, right? Um, so somebody's asked, what books in particular, uh, like of the old masters, do you enjoy reading? Uh, well, as you probably heard already, I can't remember anybody's name. I've read all, I have all the books and I've read them all. There was, um, I like, these aren't masters books, but I, just recently reread Klaus Balkenhal's the, he's the riding policeman the German and I remember thinking when I read it wow this guy's getting a lot done while he's on a long long hot daily ride so he's not in there for 45 minutes bright and fresh in an arena this guy's out on patrol and I lately I've been working with some of the mounted patrol from Orange County they sent us about oh, awesome that's great about six horses and you know I send it home and the next day they'll send a picture back and it's on the tarmac with a Boeing 767 or whatever beside it and it's like wow okay they're like you did a great job I'm like well I didn't do that <laughs> but so it's been really neat with them and I've actually recommended this book to them because it, it it really came through to me like you can get a lot done if you put your mind to it no matter what environment you're in um, but a lot of the older books uh, yeah you called me on that one. That's okay. You can always um, text me a list and I can put it in the, in yeah, the description. Sure. Okay, so I can put it in the description when I post the Zoom meeting. Um, but see, that, that's a perfect example of teaching a skill and not a drill. You didn't train the horse to the airplane. You trained the horse to be okay. And then he could make the association. And that's the piece is that when we train 
forces our people to learn how to learn and to be to be engaged they can extrapolate from one experience to another and connect the dots but when we just drill them and when we stress them and when they're um, shut down they can't do that there's this little box over here and then this is an entirely different box over here and they can't draw correlations and so that's one of the things that's so important about not pushing a horse into that shutdown place um, because they're not learning there. They're just coping. Um, years ago, I had a student and she bought a horse from summer camp that she jumped it all summer long, brought it home and stopped jumping it for a little while. And the horse wouldn't walk over a garden hose and never jumped again because he had wow. been jumping totally shut down. And when he unwound, and this is the thing when horses are shut down, yeah, and you know, you have to be willing to be there for the long haul because you don't know what's going to come out uh, mm -hmm. when they thaw <laughs> you know, right. they out of that freeze. Huh. Yeah, back to the obstacles and back to trail riding. I mean, you, you're showing them every little snapshot during the day or during the obstacle challenge or during the trail ride is something they've never seen before, even if it's still trees and air and wind and a bird and a wild turkey or it's still a snapshot they've never seen right the more they get exposed the more they get hauled the better yeah so back, back to the question about taking a horse out by by herself you know haul more yeah trail, trail ride more well and it's also you know the other piece is kind of going back to what you talked about from the beginning with your obstacles and sharon Woolsey's safety cone and what the surefoot pads do is going out a little bit where the horse is a little anxious and i mean a little not a lot and then waiting there until the horse takes a big breath lets down lets the neck down and and basically it's called homeostasis um sharon wilsey calls it zero it's our nervous system will come back to a norm given time like if we get stressed like mm -hmm. the other day when i forgot to hit record on the zoom meeting it took me all day to overcome that mistake because I, it was a great webinar and I was really thrilled and then at the very end I realized I hadn't hit record. I now have record starting at the beginning, right, automatic. But it took me hours to get okay again and it was so funny because I was watching myself and I went out in the garden and I did some weeding and I think I even went to see my horse and it, it took me hours to recover from that. Um, whereas normally if something happens to me I can recover pretty quickly but that was just one of those things and I was super aware of it. So we don't want to push the horse so far that it takes hours to recover. We want him to go a little up so that he can recover fairly quickly. I would say, I don't know if you agree with it, like 15 minutes. Like if he can't recover in 15 minutes, we've gone too far, right? And the, as I, you also said that it happens faster as they learn how to recover. Um, but I've seen horses take 15 minutes in the, you know, easy the first time. Um, I always had a saying on the trail ride, we're like, well, they'll be fine by Thursday. Yeah. yeah. You know, if they're nervous on Monday, by Thursday, they're, they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to survive the first three days. Right, right. Um, and so, like, with, a, with this person who's fairly novice, it sounds like, you don't want to push them so far that you can't recover. And that's the key, is you want to go a little over the line, but over the line in a way that you can come back. And this brings me to Dr. Feldenkrais's point. Um, that you, he always wanted things reversible. He never wanted you to go so far that you couldn't come back. It mm -hmm. didn't mean that you didn't go, but that could you come back. And if you couldn't come back, you'd gone too far. Mm -hmm. um, and so like if you take a horse out and you uh, 
go too far, you know, you, it's going to be ugly. So somebody's asked a really good question, Sean, about using Surefoot pads. And, and um, you want to tell us a little bit about your experience? Because I don't know if you're using them now. I know you have some. <laughs> yeah, I, I did use them quite a bit off and on over the last few years. Um, I had actually some questions for you. I had a couple of horses that it was really strange. In the same week, they, the right lead on three horses got rough on me. And I didn't know why. And I would, I would actually get someone else to ride them. And I was watching and seeing if they were striding and if the stride length seemed normal and everything was sound and, you know, whatever. And I really think that, I don't know if you remember helping me, I leaned to my left a little bit too much and I lengthened my left leg a little too much. And I kept kind of bringing myself back to where I should be as best I can. And I really realized that I actually had started becoming unbalanced myself. And so I was really working on that and I got the sure pads out and I would do the back feet and the front feet. I didn't do a lot of all four. I just did both fronts or both backs because I was still figuring it out. And uh, I don't know what fixed it, but it did fix itself. Oh, cool. It took a couple of weeks and then, and now, well, not now, but at the end of that, it did help a lot. And I don't know if it was from using the sure pads with the horse, but probably didn't hurt probably helped a lot. And then thinking about it, being conscious of it myself, you know, cause I really, I never knew I was off balance at all and watching someone ride, you might never ever suspect it, but you do. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you always pick it out. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is it, you know, people need to remember that this, it's a combination of horse saddle and rider. And when I say horse, you've got teeth, feet, back saddle, right. You know, there's, it's a complex system. And any one thing can pull the other two out of out of whack, out of balance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've had horses where I've worked with the surefoot pads and they've gotten really balanced, but then, you know, I don't address the rider um, because I'm, I've been doing some experiments where I don't address the rider to see, can the horse recover just doing the horse? And in some cases, yes. And in some cases, no. That if we don't address the rider, and sometimes it's the saddle, if we don't address those three primary things, then... Sure, sure foot pads are going to do so much, but they may not resolve the, the entire issue. And we just need to always be willing to look deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe you'll start using your sure foot pads a little more often. I am going to after this. <laughs> you prompted me to do that again. You know how it is though with horses. Sometimes you get down a certain path and you start working with something and then it kind of comes and comes and goes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, you know, I have a shed full of, of stuff that I have used in my teaching on and off. And what happens is it, I just kind of forget about it for a while and it sits in the shed and then something sparks my memory and I go grab it back out and I go, oh, this is the best thing and why did I forget to use it, you know? And, and oh, yeah. you know, we come and go, but that's the beauty of it too, is that you, you can let it go for a while and come back and pick it back up. And um, the horses remember, they remember the pads. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so it'd be interesting. Last night I had Felicitas von Neumann Cosell as my guest and she's a dressage trainer. She uses them every single day, about five to 10 minutes per horse um, oh. before she rides them. And she does all kinds of stacking. So maybe you want to go watch that webinar and kind of get an idea of some of the things she's doing. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, um, well, it's two o'clock. That hour went fast. Did it really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, it's really great to catch up with you. I haven't seen you uh, since 2017, I think it was. Yeah, it's been two or three years. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, um, I don't know when I'm going to be traveling back down to do any clinics or anything. So this is, it's been really great to see you and to catch up and 
see your smiling face and, and find out what you've been up to. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, for having me. That was a lot of fun. Yep. Um, all my webinars are posted on my Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. You can find them also if you go to my Facebook page, Murdoch Method or Surefoot Equine. Tomorrow my guest is Dr. Stephen Peters. I'm really looking forward to having him back. We're going to do Brain 201. And um, just always remember, enjoy the ride. And thank you so much, Sean, for joining us today. Thank you, Wendy. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.